It's Thursday at 3 o'clock, and you are listening to the Eagle's Nest on Weagle 91.1 FM, talking all things sports with a special focus on our Auburn Tigers here on the Plains. Your calls are welcome at 334-844-9345 or 334-844-WEAGLE, and you can also find me on Instagram at Locke. Let's climb into the nest. Welcome into the Eagle's Nest. This is your host, Daniel Locke, coming to you live from the Bradley Basin Studio in the Harold Melton Student Center on the campus of Auburn University, where it is an overcast 82 degrees. If you would like to be part of today's action, you can tweet at me at Daniel J. Locke or DM me on Instagram at TheDanielLock. Without further ado, let's get into the nest. This past weekend was crazy. It's ironic because when Jack Hart and I were previewing week four of college football and compact discourse last Thursday, you can find me on there from time to time, I said I thought it would be boring. Man, oh man, did I have to eat my words. I thought that because everything that was going on this weekend and next weekend, that last weekend was going to be kind of just run of the mill, not really anything great, but man, oh man, was I wrong. We had a ton of great games, six ranked teams lost, four of them lost to unranked teams. And getting this one out of the way first, the Georgia State Panthers rolled in the Jordan-Hare Stadium with one objective in mind, to spoil Auburn's homecoming. Let's just say they came uncomfortably close to achieving that goal. It took Auburn almost the entire game to score an offensive touchdown. Georgia State has a phenomenal performance on the ground, rushing for 267 yards. The Panthers also scored 21 points in the second quarter alone. That cannot happen if you're Auburn. The Tigers were without their best linebacker, Owen Papo, who was banged up from the Penn State game and did not dress out. They were also missing Zacoby McLean for the first half because he had to sit out due to a targeting foul he received during the Penn State game. I really do not have time to get into how I feel about that and all the officiating from the last two games, so we're just going to move on. On the offensive side of the ball for Auburn, there were so many problems. One of the most problematic Auburn games I've ever seen in my short time as an Auburn fan. First, the offensive line had a horrible game. Bo Nix had no time to do anything. I love Nick Brahms. He threw me his glove after the game. One of my favorite players on Auburn, but boy, oh boy, did he struggle. The offensive line had no push, which hindered Bo Nix's ability to do anything and hindered the ability of the receivers because Bo Nix was not throwing accurately at all, which wasn't all his fault because, like I said, he had no time to do anything. It seemed like he had to have to escape the pocket as soon as the ball was snapped. And this is unacceptable because on our line up front, we have three seniors, a grad transfer, and a sophomore, not a single freshman on this line which greatly hinders Auburn's strength, our rushing attack. Jarquez Hunter ran for 62 yards on 10 carries, and Tank Bigsby had 60 yards on 18 carries. There were not many bright points for the receivers either. Auburn picked up 253 yards through the air, which doesn't sound too bad, but is very low for when an SEC team plays a mid-major opponent such as Georgia State. This doesn't fall solely on the receivers, because like I said, you need the line to block, and you need the quarterback to deliver an accurate pass. But there were many cases of drop balls and poor route running, which definitely needs to work on. 
The receivers have struggled all year, and apparently Brian Harson would agree with that statement, as Auburn receivers coach Cornelius Williams lost his job after just four games. He will be replaced by Eric Kiso. If I mispronounce that name, please correct me on Twitter or Instagram. He has served as both a receivers coach and a co-offensive coordinator under Brian Harson during his time at Boise State. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack at the quarterback position going into this week as well. Bo Nix was pulled after poor play throughout the game and replaced by T.J. Finley in the fourth quarter. This was the first time we saw T.J. Finley playing with the first string offense so far this season, which was very interesting. T.J.'s performance was not overwhelmingly better than Bo's, but he was able to get the job done. There's a lot of debate on who should start against LSU this Saturday. I still think Bo Nix is the better option at this point, but it will be interesting to see which direction Brian Harson decides to go. That's about all the Georgia State talk I can stomach. Arkansas and Texas. This game was one of the best so far, or Texas A&M, excuse me. This game was one of the best so far. I didn't get to see much of it because I was focused on Auburn, but I did watch the highlights and it looked like it was a lot of fun for the Razorbacks. Arkansas pulled off the upset against the Aggies in Dallas, winning 20-10. They are now ranked in the top 10 for the first time since 2003. Arkansas dominated A&M in total offense as the Razorbacks had 433 yards, while the Aggies only had 272. They also won the turnover battle. Aggies quarterback Zach Calzada threw one interception, and it was the game's only turnover. Arkansas receiver Traylon Burks had an outstanding 167 yards off of only six receptions, which includes an 85-yard touchdown pass from K.J. Jefferson. Arkansas has looked great so far this year, but they will travel down to Athens, Georgia this weekend to take on the Georgia Bulldogs. It will be interesting to see how the Razorbacks can perform in that top 10 matchup this Saturday. NC State and Clemson. Perhaps the biggest upset so far this year, the ninth-ranked Clemson Tigers traveled to Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina to take on the NC State Wolfpack. NC State shocked the college football world by knocking off Clemson, who has dominated the AFC for the past six years. The Wolfpack got it done in double overtime, winning 27-21. Clemson fell to number 25 in the rankings, snapping their 97-week streak of being in the top 10, which was tied with Alabama for the second longest ever. NC State had the ball for two-thirds of the game. Now, don't get me wrong, Clemson has a phenomenal defense, but that is too much to ask of them. I know I'm going to get this wrong. Please don't get mad at me. DJ Ungalele and the rest of this Tiger offense need to find a way to hold on to the ball longer and extend their drives to give their defense time to rest. The Wolfpack quarterback, Devin Leary, had an outstanding day going 32 for 44 for 238 yards and four touchdowns. Moving on to the Shamrock Series game between Notre Dame Fighting Irish and the Wisconsin Badgers at Soldier Field in Chicago. Both sides were rocking some awesome threads, which you can hear us break down in compact discourse from last Thursday with me, Bay Marks, um, Jack Hart, and Davis Carroll. These were some of my favorite uniforms ever. The first half was very slow. The Irish held a 10-3 lead at the break. Wisconsin scored a touchdown in the third quarter and tied the game at 10. Notre Dame went crazy in the fourth quarter, putting up 31 points to propel them to a 41-13 victory over the 18th-ranked Badgers, who are now unranked. Oklahoma and West Virginia. This Big 12 matchup was interesting to say the least. The unranked Mountaineers traveled to Norman to take on the fourth-ranked Sooners. 
there was an uncharacteristically high amount of defense played. It felt like a Big Ten game. The West Virginia defense did an amazing job of slowing down Spencer Rattler and the Oklahoma offense. The Mountaineers even held a 10-7 lead at halftime. Oklahoma ended up putting through a 30-yard field goal as the clock hit zero to secure the win. This was not the first time the Sooners had scared the season as they narrowly escaped the two-lane green wave 40-35 to open up the year, and they only beat Scott Frost Nebraska Cornhuskers by a score of 23-16. to It'll be interesting to see how long Oklahoma can keep this up. Some things to take note of in college football after this week. Iowa State started at number 7, its best ranking in school history after finishing ninth in 2020, but they now sit 2-2 two and two and unranked. The North Carolina Tar Heels were number 10 to start the season, but fell out of the rankings after being routed by Georgia Tech to fall to 2-2. Two and two. Wisconsin began season number 12, but after losing to Penn State and Notre Dame, they are now 1-2 as well. Some other games from week four of college football that stuck out to me. We kicked off the week on Thursday night in Boone, North Carolina, as the Marshall Thundering Herd went to visit the Appalachian State Mountaineers, which was a very, very good mid-major game. Chase Bryce of App State went 24 for 39 for 283 yards with one touchdown and one interception. While on the other side, Grant Wells went 18 for 33 with 270 yards and one touchdown. I always love watching these mid-major games on the weeknights. They're very fun for me. I don't know why. It's just a, a weird little quirk I have in my college football fandom. Liberty at Syracuse. I was watching this game with my best friend Ben. Shout out to Ben visiting me down in the Plains last weekend for homecoming. We had a great time watching former Auburn Tiger Malik Willis try to lead his Flames to an upset over to Syracuse Orange up at the Carrier Dome in New York. Malik didn't have a great day going 14 for 19 for 205 yards, but he did throw for three touchdowns. On the other side, in one of the worst Power 5 quarterback performances I've ever seen, Garrett Strader of the Syracuse Orange went 6 for 15 for only 77 yards. How Liberty lost this game is a mystery to me. Going on now, Georgia had a home game up in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, as they beat the Vanderbilt Commodores 62 to nothing in one of the most dominant football games we've seen so far this year. Stetson Bennett made a return to the Georgia starting lineup this week going 11 for 15 for 151 yards with one touchdown and one interception thrown. Actually, I take it back. I have a new front runner for worst Power 5 quarterback performance I've ever seen. Mike Wright of the Vanderbilt Commodores, 3 for 9, 16 yards, one interception, which playing on the worst team in the SEC against definitely the best defense in the SEC, I guess is not very, that's not very surprising at all. The Florida Gators, who were coming off a tough, tough loss to the Alabama Crimson Tide in the Swamp a week earlier, hosted the Tennessee Volunteers, who were looking to upset Florida. It did not go very well for them, as Florida has started their revenge tour. Emory Jones went 21 for 27 for 209 yards and two touchdowns. 
And on the other side, Hendon Hawker did not have the best game ever, not the worst game ever, as he went 13 for 23 for 221 yards and two touchdowns. Very, very interesting game down the swamp, which Tennessee only turned the ball over one time. Actually, I correct that. Florida turned the ball over once. Tennessee did not. That is a very high point for the Volunteers. They need to capitalize that as they move on this season. In one of the most shocking games we've seen this year, the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets absolutely destroyed the North Carolina Tar Heels, who were ranked 21 in the nation, started in the top 10. Sam Howell went 25 for 39 for 306 yards and two touchdowns, which is not a bad day by any means, but he definitely needs more help from his Tar Heels offense if North Carolina is going to get back on track this year. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Ryder Cup talk, as well as my thoughts on this weekend's UFC event. This is the Eagle's Nest on Weagle 91.1 FM. Keep it here. These are the moments. Welcome back into the Eagle's Nest here on Weagle 91.1 FM. If you want to be a part of today's action, feel free to tweet at me at Daniel J. Locke or DM me on Instagram at TheDanielLock. If you missed my recap of week four of college football before the break, you can catch it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts as soon as the show is over. Now, I had a great time recapping week four of college football, but there is one thing that gets my blood pumping like nothing else, the Ryder Cup. The golf tournament between the United States and Europe that happens every even year was so much fun this year. However, much like many other things, the event was postponed last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but on the bright side, we got to enjoy it this year. This year's cup took place at Whistling Straits in Kohler, Wisconsin. The United States team got it done in dominating fashion, which is a nice change of pace after they've dropped seven of the last ten. It was the first time the United States won back-to-back tournaments at home since 1979 and 1983. The 19-9 victory enjoyed by the United States was the largest in the Cup's modern history. The United States had quite the team, being represented by Daniel Berger, Patrick Cantlay, Bryson DeChambeau, Harris English, Tony Finau, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka, Colin Murakawa, Xander Sheffield, Scotty Scheffler, Jordan Spieth, and of course, Justin Thomas. The USA squad was under the leadership of Captain Steve Stryker, and Vice Captains Fred Couples, Jim Furyk, Zach Johnson, Davis Love III, and the legendary Phil Mixon. The European team consisted of Paul Casey, Matt Fitzpatrick, Tommy Fleetwood, Sergio Garcia, Terrell Hatton, Hatton sorry, Victor Hovland, Shane Lowry, Lori Mac- Rory McIlroy, Ian Poulter, John Rahm, Bernd Weisberger, and Lee Westwood. The Europeans were led by Captains Padraig Harrington and Vice Captains Luke Donald, Robert Carlson, Martin Kamer, Graham McDowell, and Henrik Stenson. Some things I noticed during this cup. The United States Captain Steve Stricker had this to say about the American team, and I quote, This is the greatest team of all time right here. I've never won a major. This is my major. There was also talk about this week leading up to... Issues between Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau of the United States. But the two were paired together and they did and looked 
awesome. This was the first time in modern history where the United States didn't lose a single session. Also, the European caddy room looked a lot like, it was, it was quite the party going on in there. And um, I guess they aren't the only ones who like to celebrate when they shouldn't um, at TJ Finley, certain members of the Auburn football team and the Auburn student section. Um, just another note, beating a not that great group of five teams, nothing to go crazy over. Anytime you watch golf, there's an abundance of hugging between rivals, players, caddies, players, and the opposite, opposing caddies. Any duo of you can think of, you name it, they're hugging. Unlike any other sport, I do have to say. Europe can never play this bad ever again. This was one of the worst showings by a European team ever in the Ryder Cup, and it needs to stay a part of history for them. They need to they can never have a performance that looked like that ever again, or that, that won't be very good for golf in Europe. Wisconsin's quite the state for professional golf. Very, very beautiful. I love whistling straights. I want to play there myself one day. It's, just, it's a great place to watch golf, and I'm sure it's even better to play there. Dustin Johnson and John Rahm both proved why they are ranked number one and two, respectively. These guys looked awesome. I love watching DJ play. I like John Rahm as well. He's one of my favorite guys off of this European team. And there's so much fun to watch. And it's 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 a lot of fun to watch great golfers. That's all, all I can really say about that. This was the USA Golf's equivalent of the Dream Team. These guys could dominate the tour as well as international play for years to years to come. This was a lot of fun. I don't know what the most fun part was. Perhaps Sunday morning when the U.S. tacked on three more points, including when Jordan Spieth raised his putter to the skies and eagle dropped on the 16th hole that helped put away the Europeans. Perhaps it was when Scotty Scheffler chest-bumped Bryson DeChambeau late on Saturday en route to the Americans' 11th point of the week. Who am I kidding? It was Justin Thomas and Daniel Berger chugging beers on the first hole before the fourth session. That's enough golf talk for today. Let's look into UFC 266, which took place on Saturday night. The event took place at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada, which has been the site of so many awesome UFC cards. This one was no exception at all. The prelims were even entertaining about that one, which you can't say about most fights. It was very, very good to see such a fun UFC event that didn't have to rely on Conor McGregor. I just, I enjoyed that. I'm a Conor fan myself. I am sad to say that he is definitely on the downslope now, but it is time for UFC to look towards the future, and I think that is very easy, even more easy than before now that Saturday night's event is in the rearview mirror. A lot of times I can't say that I particularly enjoy the prelims of UFC events, but this event was quite the exception. They did a great job of warming up the crowd, getting getting the people over in Vegas ready to watch the awesome night of action ahead, and I, I really enjoyed watching them compete, watching some of these up-and-coming fighters who trying to get their names out there. Some of them it's their first time ever competing in the UFC, and it's just it's so awesome to see. But the main card was absolutely electric. 
To kick it off, Jessica Andrade beat Cynthia Calvillo by way of knockout at the 454 mark of the first round. Jessica, who is ranked number one in the UFC women's flyweight division, was a 280-point favorite. She definitely proved why. She hit 56% of her strikes while Cynthia only hit 36. Jessica dominated every area of the mat in, in, one, con- in, in one in convincing fashion. I can't imagine there being too many women challenging her for that number one spot in the division anytime soon. The second fight of the main card was a heavyweight contest between my man Curtis Blades and Jerzino Rosenstruck. While Blades did pick up the win by way of unanimous decision, Rosenstruck definitely showed up to fight. This was my personal favorite fight on the card, not just because I enjoy Curtis Blades, but just because I love the heavyweight division and I like watching those guys have competitive fights. Curtis hit 113 out of 190 strikes for 59% accuracy. Rosenstruck hit 46 out of 99 strikes for roughly 46% accuracy. (coughs) Curtis also successfully hit 3 out of 6 takedowns. The significant strikes were the closest part of this fight, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Blades did well when the fighters fighters were either distance or on the ground, but I do have to say Rosenstruck did very well when the fighters were in a clinch position. Moving on to Nick Diaz and Robbie Lawler. This middleweight contest was one of the most anticipated fights on the card, as well as this year in general. I remember tweeting back in July that this was the most excited I'd ever been for a fight that did not have Conor McGregor in it. The 17 years in the waiting rematch was so awesome, and this fight was very anticipated, and it did, it did well. Robbie Lawler picked up the win at the 44, with 44 seconds left in the third round. Nick Diaz hit 150 out of 339 strikes for 44% which isn't great, but not horrible, while Robbie Lawler connected 131 out of 221 times for 59% accuracy. Diaz attempted one takedown and was unsuccessful. The co-main event was for the Women's Flyweight Championship. Valentina Shevchenko successfully defended her title against Lauren Murphy. Valentina picked up the win by way of knockout at the four-minute mark of the fourth round. She connected on a whopping 65% of her strikes, going 132 of 204. Lauren Murphy struggled big time, only connecting on 19 out of 100 strikes. Valentina probably could have finished this fight earlier, but she chose to go conservatively. Much like Jessica Andrade, I can't imagine too many women wanting to challenge Valentina anytime soon. The main event of this card was for the featherweight division crown. Alexander Volkanovsky was successful in his title defense against Brian Ortega. Alexander was declared the winner by unanimous decision. He stayed on the offensive, throwing 377 strikes throughout the five-round contest, landing 229 of them for a solid 61%. Brian Ortega was playing more defense than the Clemson Tigers on Saturday night. He only threw 250 strikes, landing 101 of them for a poor 40% accuracy. It is worth mentioning he did go 2-for-5 on takedowns, which is solid. Not great, but solid. So there were some positives for Ortega to build on going into his next fight, which will surely be a lesser event than a title match, but it'll be interesting to see what he can do. Some takeaways I have from 
this event. Overall, it was great. It was a lot of fun to watch. There was a lot of fast-paced action mixed in with some conservative healing out process fighting. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and as always, I'm very much looking forward to the next UFC event. The next UFC event will be UFC 267. It'll be on Saturday, October 30th, the same day that Auburn plays Ole Miss. The prelims will start at 1 in the afternoon because it is in the United Arab Emirates. I always love watching fights over there. I really, really like the culture they have, and it's just a lot of fun. This card looks absolutely stacked. The main event being Jan Blachowicz versus Glover Teixeira for a lightweight title bout, or light heavyweight title bout, excuse me. That's probably my favorite division in the UFC. I have a lot of fun watching those guys fight. The co-main event is a bantamweight title bout between Aljamain Sterling and Peter Jan. Aljamain successfully defended his title by, by way of disqualification when his opponent, I cannot remember who it was at the moment, had an illegal hit and was disqualified from the fight. And, yeah, as I'm looking down this card, it's absolutely stacked. And I'm very, very much looking forward to watching that one. Ah, here's a good one. Magomed Ankalov will face Vulcan as well. God, these names. Ozdemir in a light heavyweight bout. That'll also be a very fun one to watch. Looking forward to that one. And the heavyweight bout. Probably the best heavyweight bout on the card and overall best on the card is in the title fight. Alexander Volkov versus Marcin Tibera. I like these guys ranked 5 and 9 in the heavyweight division respectively. Both very competitive. It'll be interesting to see what they can do. That is going to do it for this segment. After the break, NFL Week 3 recap and Week 4 preview. You're listening to the Eagle's Nest on Weagle 91.1 FM. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back into the Eagle's Nest on Weagle 91.1 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Locke. So far today, we have recapped week four of college football, dove into the Ryder Cup, and then the UFC event this past Saturday night. If you missed any of today's action, you can catch the recording on Spotify or anywhere else you find your podcasts. It will be up shortly after we leave the nest today. This week in the NFL was a lot of fun. This week got started with Sam Darnold leading the Carolina Panthers to a 24-9 win over the Houston Texans. Sam threw for 304 yards. Davis Mills had a fairly good first start for the Texans, going 19-28 for for 168 yards and threw one touchdown. He reminds me of Jameis Winston a little bit. Christian McCaffrey went down with an injury, so I'm so sorry to anyone who has the electrifying CMC on their fantasy roster. History was made during the early window on Sunday as Justin Tucker put through a 66-yard field goal as the clock hit zero to put away Jared Goff and the Detroit Lions. Lions fans, I am so, so sorry. One of the most entertaining games from this week definitely has to be, and the definite biggest upset we've seen so far this year, was the Los Angeles Chargers. I'm still getting used to them not being in San Diego. Knocking off the Kansas City Chiefs by a score of 30-24. to Justin Herbert had a great day, going 26 for 38, throwing for 281 yards and four touchdowns. 
the Atlanta Falcons traveled to East Rutherford, New Jersey to take on Daniel Jones and the New York Giants. This one was ugly. Atlanta ultimately got it done, winning 17-14. Matt Ryan looked solid, going 27 for 36 for 243 yards and two touchdowns. Daniel Jones had a very similar-looking stat line, going 24 for 35 for 266 yards. Atlanta won on a late touchdown drive to put away the Giants. My Saints traveled up to Foxborough to take on the Patriots. Mac Jones definitely got his workout in, going 30 for 51 for 270 yards and one touchdown. Jameis Winston went 13 for 21 with 128 yards and two touchdowns. Alvin Kamara rushed for 89 or had 89 oh my goodness. 89 yards on 24 attempts. He also threw, Mac Jones also threw three interceptions, which really helped the Saints take care of business, winning 28-13. The Las Vegas Raiders, another one that's taking some getting used to, hosted the Miami Dolphins in the Death Star. This was a great game for our Tigers in the NFL. Peyton Barber ran for 111 yards and one touchdown on three attempts. Daniel Carlson had a good day as well. Derek Carr looked awesome, going 26 for 43 for 386 yards and two touchdowns. He also threw one interception. Jacoby Brissett, who is starting in the place of Tua Tungvaloa, a guy who Auburn fans know very well, had a decent day, going 32 for 49 for 215 yards. Daniel Carlson put the finishing touches on this one for the Raiders, by hitting a 22-yard field goal to win it. We're equal to that. Tom Brady headed out west to SoFi Stadium to meet up with Aaron Donald and the Los Angeles Rams. This one was a true quarterback battle. Tom went 41 for 55 for 432 yards and one touchdown. Matt Stafford went 27 for 38 for 343 yards and four touchdowns. Tom Brady was the leading rusher for his team. I can't imagine that that has happened too many times during his career. The seven-time Super Bowl champion ran for 14 yards and one touchdown off of three attempts. Deshaun Jackson had a big day for the Rams. He only caught three passes, but they were good for 120 yards and a touchdown. On the other side, Mike Evans had eight catches for 106 yards. Both L.A. teams were able to pull off an upset this week as the Rams took this one 34-24. My good buddy Bay Marks was happy with the result of this one as his Green Bay Packers took a trip to Santa Clara to visit the San Francisco 49ers. This was probably the most exciting game from the Week 3 slate. Jimmy G went 25-40 of 40 for 257 yards, two touchdowns, and one interception. Aaron Rodgers went 23-33 of 33 for 261 yards and two touchdowns. Devontae Adams caught for 132 yards and one touchdown off of 12 interception, receptions. Not interceptions. Jimmy G connected with Kyle Jezizic for a 12-yard touchdown to give San Fran a 28-27 lead with 37 seconds left. Aaron Rodgers proved that that was too much time. He led Green Bay down the field to set up Mason Crosby for a game-winning field goal. The other games this week. The Buffalo Bills beat the Washington football team 43-21. The Cleveland Browns beat the Chicago Bears 23-6. to 
Derrick Henry and the Tennessee Titans beat up the Indianapolis Colts 25-16 to in a tough, tough matchup. The Cincinnati Bengals and Joe Burrow beat Ben Roethlisberger and the Pittsburgh Steelers 24-10. to That was a good one to watch. The Arizona Cardinals beat the Jacksonville Jaguars 31-19. for Trevor Lawrence is struggling, and Urban Meyer is considering faking more health issues, I would be willing to bet. The Denver Broncos beat the New York Jets 26 to nothing. The Minnesota Vikings beat the Seattle Seahawks 30-17. to To close out this week on Monday Night Football, the Dallas Cowboys beat the Philadelphia Eagles 41-21. to Getting into Week 4, which kicks off tonight when Trevor Lawrence and the Jacksonville Jaguars travel up to Cincinnati to visit the Bengals and Joe Burrow. I could see this being Trevor's best game so far, but I think the Bengals are going to pull this one out. Chase Young and the Washington football team travel down to Atlanta to take on Matt Ryan and the Falcons. I think Washington gets this one done in a low-scoring affair. Davis Mills gets to make his second NFL start against the Buffalo Bills up in Orchard Park. I don't see that going too well for him and the Texans, as I think the Bills will win in convincing fashion. Detroit is heading to the Windy City to take on no other than the Bears. This one is intriguing, I do have to say. I think the Lions will get it done against their NFC North rival. The red-hot Carolina Panthers travel out to Jerry World to play the Cowboys. I think Sam Darnold and the Panthers will keep their undefeated season going in a close one as they knock off Dallas. The Dolphins host the Colts. I think Indy gets it done in a low-scoring low battle. Baker Mayfield will lead the Browns into a battle against the Minnesota Vikings in U.S. Bank Stadium. I think the Browns will improve to 3-1 after a somewhat close game. Danny Dimes and Saquon Barkley are coming down to the Big Easy to play my Saints. I will be at this game, hopefully happy after a big Auburn football win the night before. I think it'll be. I think I will be a good luck charm for my boys as they will send the Giants home sad. Derrick Henry is going to enter MetLife Stadium and run all over the place. The Titans' defense might look somewhat good after this week. A battle of two one and two teams will take place at Lincoln Financial Field as Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs visit the city of brotherly love. As tough and scrappy as the Eagles are, I think Kansas City will bounce back after being upset by the Chargers last week. I do see the Bama boys Jalen Hurts and Devontae Smith having a great day. I also think Penn State alum Miles Sanders will have a decent time running as well. The Cardinals get to go visit Aaron Donald, where they will surely face a tougher challenge than last week. I think the Rams will keep their momentum going and improve to 4-0. NFC West foes face off in Levi Stadium as the Seahawks play, pay a visit to the 49ers. I think Russell Wilson will throw his first pick of the year en route to a Niners bounce-back win after their tough loss last week. The Ravens will visit Mile High, and I think the Broncos will lose their first game of the year to the best running back quarterback hybrid we have seen in a long time, Lamar Jackson. 
Pittsburgh will get to play in Lambeau Field, which is always a treat. Unfortunately for them, I think that they will fuel Green Bay's fire and the Packers will keep rolling. In one of the most anticipated matchups this year, Tom Brady returns to Gillette Stadium on Sunday Night Football. I think that his Buccaneers will be a little hungover after last week and Bill Belichick will coach his Pats to a win. Closing out this week on Monday Night Football, Derek Carr and the Raiders roll in the SoFi Stadium to face Justin Herbert and the Chargers. I think that L.A. will get this one done in a very exciting Big 12 Red River shootout type game. Before we go to break here, I want to take a look at the NFL standings now that we have a few games under our belt. In the AFC East, it is Buffalo at 2-1. and one followed by Miami at 1-2, and two, tied with New England at 1-2, and two, and the Jets are bringing up the back, as usual, with an 0-3 record. In the AFC North, the Cincinnati Bengals, who are, uh, this division's crowded, the Cincinnati Bengals, Baltimore Ravens, and Cleveland Browns all have a share of first place, all being 2-1 and one on this season. Big Ben and the Pittsburgh Steelers are bringing this one Bringing up the back of the AFC North this year, going 1-2 and two at this point. Hopefully they are not making TikToks in the locker room anymore and they are focused on football, but who knows. Moving down south, the Tennessee Titans doing very well so far, going 2-1. and one. This division not that competitive though, as next you have Davis Mills and the Houston Texans going 1-2. and two. The Jacksonville Jaguars and the Indianapolis Colts both have a share of last place going 0-3. Moving out west, the Las Vegas Raiders and Denver Broncos are tied for first, both being 3-0. The Los Angeles Chargers are in third at 2-1. And coming as a shock to many, the Kansas City Chiefs are in last place at 1-2. Moving over to the NFC, starting with the NFC least, I steal that term from Bay Marks and Jacob Hillman. Before my show every Thursday, you definitely need to check out the scoreboard at 2. Bay and Jacob are great at what they do. They were definitely my biggest inspiration into getting involved here at Weagle. I've called into their show many times over the years I've listened. I love both of those guys. They are great, great at what they do, very entertaining. Definitely check it out. You will not be disappointed. Anyways, the Dallas Cowboys 2-1. and one. Next, you have the Washington football team and Philadelphia Eagles, who are both 1-2, and two, bringing up the back and the NFC least. My guy, Danny Dimes, Daniel Jones, as the Giants go 0-3 so far. The NFC North, Green Bay, 2-1, first place. The Chicago Bears and the Minnesota Vikings are both 1-2. They are in second and third, followed by Jared Goff and the lowly Detroit Lions. I really hope for the sake of the Lions that they get this going soon. Getting into my territory now, the NFC South. The Carolina Panthers are 3-0, looking red hot. We'll see how they do in Jerry World this weekend, and we'll see how Tampa Bay does up in Foxborough. Carolina's 3-0, Tampa Bay's 2-1. They're in first and second place, respectively. My New Orleans Saints are 2-1 and one as we have a cupcake coming into the Dome on Sunday, I hope, and hopefully we will run all over them and prove to 3-1. and one. 
the Atlanta Falcons are bringing up the back in that division at 1-2. and two. In the NFC West, the Los Angeles Rams and the Arizona Cardinals are both 3-0. and oh. The San Francisco 49ers are next at 2-1. and one. And then we have the Seattle Seahawks at 1-2. and two. It'll be interesting to see how these standings change or stay the same throughout this year. That is it for NFL Talk this week. After the break, week five of college football. You're listening to the Eagle's Nest on Weagle 91.1 FM. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back into the Eagle's Nest. I'm your host, Daniel Locke. So far today, we have talked about week four of college football, the Ryder Cup, UFC 266, and NFL weeks three and four. If you want to hear any of that, you can catch it on the podcast, which will be up shortly after today's show. To finish up, we are going to discuss week five of college football, including my trip down to Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Up first, game day will be heading to Athens, Georgia. Why anyone would want to go there on their own will is a complete mystery to me, but to each their own. The 8th-ranked Arkansas Razorbacks are going to face off against the 2nd-ranked Georgia Bulldogs. This is the first time since 2012 that Arkansas has been ranked this highly. It's nice to see the Razorbacks back. I think this is the week that Arkansas's luck is going to run out, unfortunately, as I think Georgia will get this done. The Bulldogs are going to be heading down to the Plains next weekend, which will be very interesting, and I do have to admit has me quaking in my boots a little bit. But, as always, War Eagle, we'll see. The 14th-ranked Michigan Wolverines will be heading to Madison, Wisconsin to jump around with the Badgers at Camp Randall Stadium. I'm going to go with the underdog here. I think Wisconsin will have revenge on their mind and knock off Michigan at home. The 3-1 and Louisville Cardinals are heading over to Winston-Salem to take on the 24th-ranked Wake Forest Demon Deacons. The Deeks have climbed into the top 25. I think they are going to ride their momentum train this week and improve to 5-0. The Cincinnati Bearcats, who are ranked number 7, will play the 9th-ranked Notre Dame Fighting Irish under the shadow of Touchdown Jesus this Saturday. I think the home field advantage will be enough to put the Irish over the top and propel them to a victory. 2.30 CBS. Lane Kiffin will attempt to be the first former assistant of Nick Saban's to earn a win against him. My parents will be heading to this game as they're both big Bama fans. It is my dad's birthday. That'll be a nice birthday treat for him. Happy birthday, Dad. Hope you enjoy it. Unfortunately, I'll be pulling against your tide, but I hope you have a great day. Lane Kiffin will have his work cut out for him heading into Bryant-Denny. He will need a big day for Matt Corral and his defense but it it definitely is not impossible. I'll be watching this game very closely from Baton Rouge, but I think that Alabama will pick up this win. However, I think it's going to be a nail-biter, much like their game in the Swamp two weeks ago. Mike Gundy's 21st-ranked Oklahoma State Cowboys will host the 19th-ranked Baylor Bears. I think Spencer Sanders will have some good connections with Tay Martin as Oklahoma State gets the job done. The fourth-ranked Penn State Nittany Lions will be facing off against the Indiana Hoosers. Indiana, as much as I love them, have looked very bad overall this year, especially when facing tough competition. I think Penn State will get a chance to tune up and rest some of their starters 
leading up to the big matchup against the Iowa Hawkeyes the following week. The Clemson Tigers, who are barely ranked, hanging on by a thread at the 25 spot, will host the undefeated Boston College Eagles. As bad as I want to pick BC, I think that Clemson will get back into the win column this week. I would be interested to see how that game would be different if it were going to be held up in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. That's a great area. I would recommend anyone look up there. That brings us to the big one. The 8 o'clock matchup between Ed Orgeron's LSU Tigers and our beloved Auburn Tigers. The good Tigers, as I've heard them referred to this week. It's a night game. 8 p.m. in Death Valley. Which will be, that'll be a late night. And then the next morning I have to get up and drive to New Orleans for hopefully not another nail biters. I don't think I can handle two nail biting games in one weekend. I do think that the LSU game will be very, very tough for us. It is worth noting that I was not alive the last time Auburn picked up a win in Baton Rouge. Most Auburn students were not alive the last time Auburn picked up a win in Baton Rouge. In 1999, the good Tigers beat the bad Tigers very bad, and Auburn has not been able to replicate that success down in Death Valley since. But, you know, it's a new year. LSU is very beatable. There are a couple question marks so far, or this week for Auburn. We still don't know who's going to start at quarterback. I personally think it will be Bo Nix, but that remains to be seen. I hope they go with Bo, but I definitely see the benefit of going with TJ Finley. I'm not sure if anything's been said about Owen Papo. If anyone has heard anything about him, please don't hesitate to tweet that at me or shoot me a DM. I would really, really like to know if Owen will be able to play. It'll also help the defense to have Zacoby McLean back for the whole game. I think we need a very big day from our our offense. Bo or TJ or Grant Loy or Demetrius Davis or whoever Brian Harson decides to go with at quarterback will need to lead this offense to big, big things. That starts up front with the O-line. Nick Brahms, one of my favorite players in Auburn, but we need some solid snaps. We need some solid push from the rest of these guys, and that's where it all starts, every single play. We need a big day from the ground attack. Jarquez Hunter, Sean Shivers, Tank Bigsby. I I think this is a game that we're going to need more than 200 yards on the ground. I think that, that is, that's what it's going to take to get it done. The quarterback spot, we're going to need to be accurate. We're going to have to deliver, and that the quarterback spot's the biggest question mark going into this game, which everyone for Auburn this year, I guess you could say the linebackers have overall been the best position group, but we're going to need some electric things from both sides of the ball if we want to break the curse of losing to LSU in Death Valley. ESPN's matchup predictor, they're giving LSU a 52.2% chance to win. The spread is 3.5. The money line is 170 in favor of LSU, up 145 in favor of Auburn. It looks like it'll be a warm day and a somewhat get get down. It's going to get down to the 60s, it looks like, Saturday night, which is... I guess normal for an October night. 
and I think that it'll be very, very loud in there. I'm definitely bringing my earplugs. I learned that lesson up in Happy Valley two weeks ago, not making that mistake again. Some keys to victory for Auburn that are currently allowing 44, or they're currently scoring about 44 per game. I think that they're going to they're, they're gonna need to stick around that. They're currently only allowing 15.5 per game on average. I think if they stick to that, they will be okay. You need to capitalize on offense. You need to hold on defense. You don't need to celebrate beating teams like Georgia State. I know I keep harping on that. I just still can't believe it. I would be curious to know if LSU celebrated more after knocking off Mississippi State on Saturday or if we celebrated more after knocking off Georgia State. I'm sure for both sides it was kind of a disappointing thing to see as neither of those teams are very good. We're going to need Tank, and we're going to need him in a big way. We're also going to need a receiver to step up. John Samuel Shanker has been electric at the tight end position, but I think we're also going to need Kobe Hudson, Shedrick Jackson, Demetrius Robertson. We're going to need all those guys. That is about all the time I have here today. Thank you for tuning in to my second episode of the Eagle's Nest here on Weagle 91.1 FM. If you missed any of the action, it'll be up on the podcast shortly. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. And as always, War Eagle. You've been listening to The Eagle's Nest with Daniel Locke on Weagle 91.1 FM. Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 3 o'clock for more sports action on the Plains. As always, if you miss out, you can catch the podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at TheDanielLock. Until next time, have a great day and we're Eagle.